Mark Graven and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 32 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graven. We're joined by Jamie Flinchbaugh. How are you, Jamie? I am well, Mark. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, we are recording this basically between uh, NFL championship, conference championship uh, games, weekend games. I said that very badly. No whiskey involved. I just am not talking good right now, apparently. This will be fun. Yeah, and they didn't, they, they didn't create a pause in between the games to allow us to do this. <laughs> right. So watching, I mean, I, I watched the end of Bengals Chiefs and was surprised by the ending of that. And I'll probably, we'll get to the second half of Rams 49ers uh, tonight. Uh, but do you have, uh, we're going to talk before we get into a little bit of whiskey talk and some workplace talk and leadership uh, talk. Do you have a favorite NFL team? Just in general, yeah. So I don't, I don't watch a lot of football. I, I have just recently, as in last weekend, which was pretty exciting, um, weather weather induced. Uh, uh, sit around and watch football, um, but uh, yeah, I'm a Steelers fan, um, and uh, you know, grew up a Steelers fan. I also, just because it was the closest team, grew up uh, going to some Baltimore Colts games, and. Uh, you know, so a lot of when they left town, um, you know, a lot of people, was, you know, shunned them. Right? It was moving trucks in the middle of the night. Literally. Moving trucks in the middle of the night. That's right. So, uh, no, but I was already a Steelers fan and, uh, you know, Terry Bradshaw and Mean Joe Green and Franco Harris and guys like that. So, uh, um, yep, that was my team. Um, you know, I, this year, honestly, making the playoffs was a was a pretty surprising success, uh, not relative to the, to, to the, uh, the team's ambitions, but relative to what yeah. we had to work with this year. But, uh, uh, then we got, you know, we, we got ousted pretty handily. Um, yeah. And, um, Ben Roethlisberger into retirement now. Into retirement time to rebuild. Um, again, I'm not a big football fan, so I don't sit and yeah. uh, Monday morning quarterback, uh, or, or any of that other stuff, but, even though I respect the uh, the Rooney's standing behind coaches for long periods, I think that's super cool. Yeah, I don't feel like, hey, let's clean house. New coach, new quarterback. Just you know, spend you know, just accept our accept our fate, moving on from Big Ben and yeah. uh, and rebuild. Well, so yeah, we can turn this into a little uh, detour into management talk and leadership talk. <laughs> the Steelers have um, just yeah, the the what three coaches since the 1970s something like that right who was it before you had right now you have mike tomlin then you had bill cower who was there a long time and then who was the coach with the terry bradshaw the late 70s 80s teams you mentioned yeah i can't remember all of a sudden um i would recognize the name if i saw it but yeah, so correct. we're not a football podcast um we we're are. barely a whiskey podcast but at the other end of that management spectrum i grew up a detroit lions fan who on average, they have a new coach every two and a half seasons, probably. Yes. 
And no, now they have stability in the ownership, the Ford family. And there's people back in Michigan who get really wound up about, you know, they need to sell the team. Nothing will change until they sell the team. I don't really care anymore because I quite literally gave up on the Lions when Barry Sanders gave up and retired at a pretty young age and said, okay, I don't need to deal with this anymore. I'm no Barry Sanders, but I thought, you know, I don't need to deal with it either. They've won one playoff game in my lifetime, which is wow. 48 years. I think they won the playoff game my freshman year in college. So it's just like a lot of failure. Yeah, it's it's um it's bad. They're not they're not really set up for success, it seems. And uh yeah, I used to when Matt Millen was the president, um I would I would often share an aisle on a on a Northwest Airlines regional jet because he lives near me and he and He's I would be guy. He's a Penn State guy and and still lives here and um, and he uh, yeah he and I would end up on the on the same flight we're probably some of the more frequent flyers and we'd be going to Detroit and he and I are on a regional jet next to each other crammed into seats not not super comfortable right and I I left him alone because I knew that you know anywhere he goes fire milling chance would break up <laughs> right so I felt felt pretty bad for the guy but. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Lions tough to, tough to root for. Um, so who do you, who's, who do you pull for now? I I'll watch whatever good game of the week is on. I don't spend too much time on NFL. Um, I've enjoyed these close playoff games, but you know, I'm sitting here in suburban Dallas, Fort Worth area. I've never, I've not picked up the Cowboys. Uh, Jerry Jones rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. It's not into that. And I'm I'm not going to be uh, well. Yeah, I haven't been in LA long enough to. Um, yeah, I did go to one game. I wanted to go see the stadium, the first game of the year. Uh, Rams hosted the Bears, but you know, of the of the three teams left, I will play. I, I'll be a homer, a semi homer, and root for the Rams. You know, pe- people around me when I'm in LA, they'll be happy for that. So I'll I'll just pull for the Rams now. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an, you know, if I, my team isn't playing, I'm kind of an underdog fan. Um, so even though Steelers fans don't typically pull for the, the Bengals, I, uh, I, I thought that was a, a nice, a nice result. And, uh, um, you know, I, I also sort of, I respected the era of, of Montana. And so probably be pulling for the 49ers today, but yeah, really, Honestly, it's um, it's not going to lose any sleep over any result. No, um, I just think a good a good Super Bowl might be fun, and I won't be traveling as I typically am. If I ever yeah. see a Super Bowl, usually it's from a hotel room. So, yeah, it's right. I've only done that a couple times. I there was one year I was on a plane during the Super Bowl, and that was the Rams. What was the 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 real close finish where the receiver reached out the ball? I don't know. There was it was a really good game, and I missed it because I was on a flight. And then there was one year I watched it, combination of a hotel bar and hotel room. I like a Super Bowl party, so I I'd like to be home if I can. But I, I might I might be on a plane or on the road this year, which would be the first time on the road in almost two years. So I guess yeah, it's time. Yeah, I've. Uh... Um, I've been out of the country, um, and my my former partner Andy Carlino, he's a big Patriots fan, and so I remember it was a Patriots year, and it was you know he's we're in I think England or Amsterdam or something like that, and he's trying to uh, 
trying to get the game uh, there. And uh, I do remember seeing the the big Tom Brady comeback Super Bowl win. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was in a hotel in Kansas City, if I remember. But uh, yeah, so I, I've seen some. But I, I used to travel so much that um, it was very rare that I was home for a Super Bowl. I would try to carve out the Super Bowl. And I was also in jobs where the travel was out Monday morning, typically. Yeah. I was almost always out Sunday, so it's easier to handle. So the the one that I missed and didn't see at all that was Rams Titans. Okay, back in two thousand three, I just did a quick googling on that. So, um, good luck to everybody out there who does care more deeply about the NFL games and and their teams as we get into the Super Bowl. So maybe let's let's shift from introductory whiskey talk or from football talk into whiskey talk. And as I get into a glass of whiskey, maybe, maybe I'll be talking better. Maybe. Yeah. Um, at least, at least you'll perceive that you are. So, um, right. uh, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend this is the tie in, but, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of pretend it's the tie in is since we've had a lot of really close football games, we'll drink a couple of really close whiskeys. <laughs> there you go. All right. That was a, that was a weak effort at a tie in. So, um, so what we're doing today is comparing two similar whiskeys, similar in the sense that they come from the same distillery, um, or came come from the same brand. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> right um, in, in a second, and and in an extremely rare, if not unique, situation, we actually have the same whiskeys. Um, yeah, we just happen to pick things that are, I'll say, common enough on. On, on most shelves, but I'm not. Sure, I'm not so sure that's true. I think common, it's common-ish. Common-ish. I mean, they're not hard to find, but um, yeah. So we're gonna be we're gonna be drinking two uh, whiskeys from the uh, the Willet family. Uh, so we're gonna have Willet uh, Pot Still Reserve um, and Johnny Drum, uh, two uh, two bourbons from the the Willet family. They've actually renamed the the company uh, a while ago to this. Is, you know, today the, the whole idea of heritage and family names is is revered. But I, I think when they renamed the company, it, it wasn't so much right. It was a sort of what, what what was the name before? Well, before it was I think it was the Willett Family, you know, Distillery or something like that. And now the official name is Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey. Uh, I think distillery or something like something to that effect. Uh, but nobody calls it that it's still, yeah. you know, it's referred to as Willet because that's uh, uh, what it's, what it's known. As. And, and, and it is family owned, I believe. Like I've done the Willet tour and they haven't been bought up by one of the mega conglomerates of the liquor world. Right now it, it helps that they weren't producing for quite a while, but the, uh, yeah, the family goes back to pre-revolutionary war. Um, and, you know, they had, they had moved at some point to Kentucky. I don't remember the whole family history, but but one one part of the interesting history is leading into the uh, decline of whiskey, along with the energy crisis in the seventies, they they got out of whiskey and started making gasohol, which was meant to be a, an alcohol-based gasoline substitute to help with the um, uh, help with the energy crisis. And then, uh, that didn't really go anywhere. Right. So, uh, uh, they, they basically shut down all alcohol production in the eighties. Um, 
And then as, as whiskey came back, they had some old stock still in barrels. And, and uh, I believe it was Johnny Drum started selling with 15-year labels on it because um, that's what they had. Uh, it was 15 year whiskey and, and that, that ran out. Right. So, yeah. So they, they only just started producing whiskey again in the uh, you know, probably 14 ish years ago. Um, 2008 was some, uh, some of the indication. Um, and they, they had to source a lot of their whiskey uh, as they built up their own, distillery stock and process and aging and everything else. There's, there's the vagaries of what it means to produce. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at the bottles and we, we can talk about some of those differences and what, what the bottle tells us. Like, it seems like these are probably two, Eli, I think you described it well. These are two different whiskeys from the same company, right? So we could have done tastings that would have been perhaps the same whiskey aged longer. Or I had two Japanese whiskeys that I was considering uh, going to where one would have been Yamazaki and then one is um, uh, uh, Hakushu. So from the same distillery, one that's peated and one that's not. Or you could drink, um, there's a different whiskey I don't think I have on hand. Like that's one of the component whiskeys that's blended together to become Yamazaki. So there's, I mean, I think it's fun to do a side by side and encourage people who are listening you know, try just, you know, it's, it's fun to go back and forth and see what's different. Does a different barrel finish um, mm-hmm. do it for you? Does a different age make a difference? You know, if you have two different Johnny Walkers, you know, try um, Johnny Walker black versus Johnny Walker green and see which one you like better. Yeah. And, you know, blind tastings are fun. Uh, you really got to focus on the whiskey and not the brand or the history or anything else about it. Yeah. Um, you know, visiting a distillery where you can taste a whole lineup in a flight is is great. I've done that at Dad's Hat and in, in near outside Philadelphia, which is good Pennsylvania rye. And you know, they do a vermouth finishing, barrel finish, and a, a port finish, and and you get to try all these different you know variations. And go, I, I like this more than that, and 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 really really uh, get get a sense of the differences. So. And um, quick sidetrack, that's fun to do with wine as well, because there's um, a, a group of wineries in Oregon that literally take the same grapes from the same vineyard and they they buy and they divvy out. And then there's at least four, maybe five wineries that all take those same grapes and produce them in their method and their style. And, you know, it, it's amazing to see with the same raw material. It's it's They call it cellar crawl collection. It's a really interesting opportunity to see what the impact of the winemaker is on the wine right. and how it can taste very different from the yep. cellar. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's still, still a lot to, to be done there. Raw ingredients matter, but still a lot of, still a lot of work, still a lot of knobs to turn. And, uh, you know, whiskey is no different, right? There's, there's a lot that can be done. Um, and these are these are blended. These are not you know single barrel or anything like that. And that's that's part of the the mastery is how to maintain consistency, um, uh, if perhaps nothing else, while blending a bunch of barrels that um, you know by themselves can taste quite a bit different. So yeah, well, and you you could taste the same yeah. So the same whiskey under the same label produced five or ten years apart. Like I, I can do this at this point with Garrison Brothers whiskeys. I've got 
some that were bottled in 2014 and some that were bottled in 2021. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, and, you know, being whiskey that 2014 hasn't aged. It's just it, the 2021s may be older because the company is further along. The master distiller has gotten better at his craft. Right. And that's an interesting comparison too. Well, yeah, and 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 you know the the industry, you know, the weather, of course, is a factor. But even the, you know the industry changes what's what's okay, what's not okay, what's available. Most scotches, you know, these days are aged in bourbon barrels because bourbon barrels can only be used once, and so there's a lot of supply, and and so it, it's a lot more supply than say sherry casks. So. Mm-hmm. So a lot of scotch is, is aged in bourbon. Well, that wasn't true, you know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so you can't, you can't say, oh yeah, this is a, a you know, 250 year old distillery. It doesn't mean you're tasting the same, same recipe, uh, so to speak, as you were yeah. back then. So you're talking about um, turning knobs and dials. You said something about that a minute ago. The bottles, the Willet bottle kind of look like a still. So my, I don't know, my connection there's that there are knobs and dials on a still, not so much on, on the glass bottles, but not, not on the glass bottles, but, uh, it, it's a very unique bottle, uh, for sure. It's, it's, it's come to annoy me quite frankly. Um, <laughs> because for the people who are just listening, it is, it's beautiful glass and it's shaped like a pot still. Yeah. Super fat on the bottom with a really long neck. And, and the first problem you have, if you go to a store and you're buying whiskey, and you're like, oh, let me let me take six bottles of something, right? And then they try to put them in a case for you, and like this makes everything else not fit. <laughs> you, you put it on your bar top, and it takes up twice the room as another bottle. Yeah. And and then there's the uh, annoying glug 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 that, that <laughs> as this bottle, this long long neck tries to deal with getting getting air in the bottle while you're yeah. pouring. No, it does. Like I've got mine in the other room. It's sitting on top of a, an empty used whiskey barrel. So it is kind of uh, a cool look, look, but the glug, glug, glug factor with mine is amplified that this is actually a 1.75 liter bottle. So those who are watching might think like, oh, well, I'm holding mine closer to the camera. Like it's like for context <laughs> here, <laughs> I'm going to hold it next to the 750 bottle of Johnny drum. And you can start seeing it's not an optical illusion. Jamie's bottles are roughly the same size. My my bottle's bigger. I'm not going to say it tastes better, but it is a more difficult pour. So I'm I'm happy to try some and let's see if I can do some without spilling it on my keyboard. Yep. So as you're pouring, one of the things is that we talk about the history of this distiller is, you know, they didn't have aged aged juice, uh, what it's referred to, um, ready to go, and so they they had to start sourcing it. And uh, they've, they've, as they should be, been very secretive about who they source from. But uh, Heaven Hill, very large producer, is right down the road. And uh, between that and some flavor profiles that people think they pick up, which I say think because some people uh, imagine sometimes more than they, than they really do know. But there's an awful lot of logic in all that. So uh, it's probably from, from Heaven Hill, and they are very clearly getting their distillery up and going and they're aging up and going, but there are rules about what you could write. And so interestingly, our, our bottles of this have different text on them. Uh, so mine says distilled, aged and bottled by Willa Distillery. Now this is my, my second bottle of this. This is a newer bottle. 
And, and I, I don't think the old bottle said that. So this would suggest this is, will it distill juice? Yeah. And mine, I probably bought it two years ago. There's no production date or information like that on the bottle, but it's the, the vague distilled, aged and bottled in Kentucky, which again, like if they distilled it, they would brag about that. And there's nothing wrong with sourcing uh, bourbon, but the fact is that this one is either partly their distillate from a still that's shaped like this bottle. And some of it is certainly not. Yeah. And, and yeah, some of it, right. So some of the, uh, it's very possible that it was some of their own juice along with some others, but if they didn't do all the distilling, they can't write what, what, what now is written on the bottle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yours, yours is probably a, a blend of a little bit of theirs and a little bit of outside, like I said, probably have an ill mine appears to be, uh, now all in-house. Um, but my Johnny drum says distilled, aged and bottled in Kentucky, which suggests that it is, uh, you know, either partially sourced or entirely sourced from, uh, uh, from, from somewhere else. Yeah. And this is a bottle. In fact, I'm going to be just opening it. Uh, I bought this maybe 2018 on a visit to the Willett distillery. And it's funny. It says Johnny drum distilling company Bardstown. Uh, there's nothing on here that even tells you that there's a connection to Willett or the, the generic Kentucky bourbon distillers, KBD name that you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, well, mine says Willett distillery, um, you know, Bardstown in Kentucky. So interesting. So, yeah, it, it feels like, uh, you know, as part of a, a branding, I, I do know that they, you know, incorporated the Johnny drum distillery, uh, as a, as a company. Um, but, uh, um, but, but yeah, I think they're, they're perhaps really trying to distinguish the Johnny Drum as its own, as its own style and it's certainly its own branding. Yeah. And quite frankly, if you look at it, it just feels like it's an old label, right? Like it's like this label hasn't changed in 50 years, but it's, uh, you know, it's new, right? It's, it's really not that old. It's, it's faux historic. It's faux historic and pretty, pretty humdrum. As much as they put into the bottle of the, the, the Willet uh, you know, pot still reserve, you know, this is about as humdrum and overlooked as, as possible. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, maybe a $40 bottle at retail, I think. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's gone up some, uh, as perhaps they brought more in-house juice and, um, but gone up, uh, in price, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an affordable, um, yeah. it's a pretty affordable, uh, both of them are. I think the pot still uh, reserve is, is is going up in price, um, but we'll we'll see as we we talk about talk about these and, and and what we think. I I made a conscious choice to put them in two separate two dis different glasses, both good for tasting, but right. I, I I knew for sure that I would have I, I would have mixed them up if I <laughs> yeah. I mean, I keep the bottles lined up with the glasses. Um, so yeah, Johnny Drum, I mean, yeah, it's certainly, it's different juice. I mean, the proof is slightly higher at, yes. it's 50.5% ABV. The Willet is 47% ABV. But the, the thing that stands out on the Johnny Drum is that it says every drop charcoal filtered, which is typically more of a Tennessee whiskey 
filtration and, and process. Right. Um, so they, they'll be interesting to try side by side. You know, and, and like to me, the Willet bourbon is fine. I really do recommend if you can find it, the Willet rye is, yes. I think, better. The four year and they also have an eight year. And it's funny that those come in a very standard bottle with a nice label instead of the long necked glass. Right. Monstrosity is too mean of a word, but it's, it's <laughs> it looks nice. It's a bit unwieldy. And, and thankfully, the rye is a little more straightforward. It is. It's very, very tall necked, uh, you know, very tall bottle, but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I have some of the rye on, on my shelf and that's probably, you know, one of my favorite ryes, um, I'd say, uh, quite, quite good, um, from that regard. So yeah, the Willet, the Willet pot still, uh, reserve, it's, it's a good bourbon. Um, I, I, I agree. Um, and and I, I have to say I think I enjoyed it more the in the you know the first bottle that I had, and I, I you know I, I know of course as they're as they're evolving it's probably changing the flavor profile some it's hard not to, um, uh, but but still I think uh, you know I the, the 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 you know not to refer to four roses but the the rose is off. Uh, <laughs> Roses off the stem. Um, I'm not sure how likely I am to buy another bottle of this. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and listeners will know Jamie and I are not, you know, giving you, um, you know, whiskey expert tasting notes, but um, I'm going to re- reference uh, my wife watches The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. That's her guilty pleasure, mindless TV. So to borrow a phrase from there, from that show, from those shows, do you have uh, which whiskey would you give the first impression, Rose? I think I would. I would to answer my own question first. Um, I I think I prefer the Johnny Drum. I would give it the first impression, Rose, after a sip of each. No, I I, I easily yeah I definitely would. Um, it's just a little bit richer. It's a little bit more complex. The Willet, perfectly drinkable. Nothing wrong with it. But perfectly drinkable, and and I think um, yeah I, you know. I think the, the, the complexity, the, the Willet is, is thin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, there's, there's not a lot there. Uh, of course, the lower alcohol content, it doesn't, it doesn't carry as much, yeah. much heat. Um, and uh, the finish doesn't seem strong. It's a little more, again, I'm, I am by no means an expert. And with the cold weather and me blowing snow and shoveling, I think my sinuses have, have mm. uh, you probably can't do a whole lot, but, but, um, you know, a little more flowery, um, combined with some, some of that chard, but, uh, yeah, the Johnny drum, a lot more, a lot more character to it, in my opinion. Yeah. So we'll, we'll keep sipping these. We'll see maybe if that evaluation changes during the hour or however much longer, we podcast. You want to you want to move on to uh, it's really more and we make connections to lean management talk. Yep. Today, yeah. as we sometimes do. Let's do that. So I'll I'll tee this up a little bit, and um, you know the general topic here today comes under the banner of the quote unquote great resignation, as uh, it's being called. But you know we're going to talk about employee engagement because I think you know that we would both agree there are connections better 
more effective employee engagement would lead to fewer resignations because people are happy there. Um, so we've got a couple of things we're going to draw on from the news, but just to tee this up a little bit first, you, you've probably heard headlines uh, or news reports for at least three consecutive months, the United States has hit a new record high, the, a record number of Americans quitting their job. And so it's on the scale of like 4.5 million Americans um, quitting their job each month. It was like August, September, October. The data lags a little bit as it's compiled. And for context, that's about 3% of the workforce in a given month. To me, that's a little more compelling than 4.5 million. Well, it's a huge country, but 3%, one out of every 33 Americans quitting their job in a given month. That's a lot of change and movement. It's a lot of change. It's, it's of course, compounded by the fact that uh, what you don't hear in the news that much is, is people just being out sick. Of course, we talk about you know, hospitalizations with COVID and things like that, but just especially factories where if you know, people can't work from home, right? They're, they're, they're either in or they're not, hospitals as well, either they're at work or they're not. And if they're sick or they're exposed, they're not at work. And that's, that's you know, there's always a percentage of people who are absent. And those percentages have been, you know, an even bigger problem, quite frankly. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's big numbers um, now. And 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 just real real quick for context on the numbers. Um, sorry to interrupt. Um, it's the whiskey talking. Um, um, for context, to turn this into statistics talk real quick. Like if you go back before the Great Recession, back into the 2000s when the population wasn't much smaller, you would have roughly 2 million Americans quitting every month. So it's not just that the last three months have been records. Like there's been this steady increase over the last 12, 15 years. Right, right. And, and so some of that is an age profile, you know, baby boomers, uh, you know, retiring more and more. So, so you, you do see, I'll say the numbers aren't as bad as it seems in, in two regards. Um, one is that, you know, retirements that probably should have happened naturally were deferred. People didn't retire when they could have because why bother, right? 2017 to 2020 was pretty easy. And, mm -hmm. and so people just kept working. So you had a bunch of deferred retirements that could have happened. And so those, you know, once COVID hits, people kind of go, uh, once they realize the stock market wasn't hit and, and they, uh, and so they still had some money uh, that they weren't sure about. It's like, yeah, why am I doing this? So you, you saw an increase in retirements. And then, and then the other factor was, you know, few people that were wanted to quit that would normally quit in 2020 didn't, mm -hmm. right? Because it was hard to interview and, and things were un, unsure and they needed their insurance. And so those were, those were two things that you had delayed or deferred retirements. And then 2020 caused sort of a, a backlog of normal quits. Um, and so, you know, all that starts to catch up with us and, and, and sort of pads or, or uh, at least increases the, the, the peak, but it, but underneath was a was an underlying trend of, of going up anyway. Yeah, well, there's a good example there. Um, if we want to talk about stratifying data, or as we're going to talk about here, breaking down a problem. You know, Toyota people will talk about the big vague concern. You know, it's like. 
the problem statement that's not really well defined. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think labeling something like the great resignation, that's a big, vague concern. So then we could break down how many of those 4.5 million are now, to your point, retiring versus switching and moving to a different job. Right. And, and, and so within that, other people have proposed, I know certain consultants who, uh, you know, sell research for, for a living, uh, you know, prefer to have their own label on it, but it's been called the great shift. Mm -hmm. um, so for well. the big quit, the big quit. Right. So, so uh, the originator, uh, you know, I didn't intend to create a, a wave, but it, the, the name caught on. Um, but you know, we certainly see some some underlying shifts that are perhaps longer term trends. Now, again, it's not it's not just people leaving the workforce, uh, but it is people leaving certain industries. So, service was made worse uh, by by COVID. Um, people didn't want to do that work. Interaction with people and interaction with rude people, for that mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. So there were some underlying concerns already going on in the service industry, the food, the food service industry in particular, hot hotels and airlines and things like that. People just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. So and, that's another way we could stratify the data. Right. Um, different sectors, different levels of job. Is there as much of a great resignation in white, quote unquote, white collar jobs, management jobs, executive jobs? Right, which we have seen, which is interesting because we've seen at the CEO and you know level in particular, we've seen we've seen a surge of retirements, and and so that's that's a you know stratification of people again, people that probably could retire at any time they wanted to, and it, it was no longer fun, right? <laughs> um, particularly, I think CEOs. I think one field where we saw a lot of it was universities, where it's like. You know, most people didn't become a CEO at a university to become rich. It might be well paid, but it was in service. And then, you know, interact with students and all that fun stuff and build a university. And all of a sudden they're just, you know, dealing with, with the chaos that they are. And it's not as much fun anymore. Um, you also see, you know, again, in the, in, the, in the breaking it down, a shift to entrepreneurship. Um, and that's one that you have to wonder you know, which of these trends are long-term trends that are going to keep going, which ones aren't, you know, retirements, that, that, okay, that, there's some interesting uh, perspective on how many people kind of go, yeah, I retired, and then I got bored, and then I came yeah. back. Right. But Etsy accounts are up, I think it's Etsy, but I think Etsy accounts are up by like five to oh. sevenfold or something. Yeah. And beyond that, at some point last year, there was a record number of new business applications being filed. Yes. So now we can map the flow of people to how many of those 4.5 million every month are retiring, leaving the workforce temporarily or for a while, changing jobs or shifting to do something entrepreneurial. And then you can even break down the switching jobs. How many people are switching industries altogether, as you mentioned, versus just finding um, better conditions across the street. And we'll come back to a scenario like that um, with one of the news stories. Yeah. Now, anecdotally, I would say that at least in places like manufacturing, we're starting to see a shift and ease of hiring people coming back, um, you know, job fairs that nobody would attend. Now, now they have, you know, plenty of applicants. Um, but uh, 
so it doesn't show up in the data yet because this mm-hmm. is like, you know, two week ago, you know, <laughs> anecdotes, but um, seems to be a shift there. But yeah, we can see, you know, again, retirements and then what percentage of retirements are actually going to stick uh, and which ones are just going to be a pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many people are going to go into entrepreneurship and at-home businesses and how long is that going to stick, right? So with with mail order, with, you know, shop, internet shopping, which has boomed, um, everybody realizes, oh, I can make whatever, right? I can, I can roast coffee beans. I can, at home, I can make wood products. I can make jewelry and sell it online. Mm-hmm. Um, true, but how many people can make a living doing that, right. at least right. one that they like? Right. I mean, it comes back to the startup questions that Stephen Blank and Eric Reese and people would ask is, well, you know, can I do this? And then should I do this? Like the fact that you can roast coffee beans that people would enjoy doesn't mean that that can scale and become a business that that puts, uh, you know, a roof over your head and food on the table. Right. And, and that's where, uh, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily teach a lot of that math. Um, uh, in 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 high school and even college, just how do you evaluate that? Um, so most people evaluate it by giving it a shot, um, and so we're certainly seeing that take take place. Um, and some of that some of that shift will uh, will return, but underlying all of that is not that you know people always wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was that almost anything was more attractive than the job they were doing. Right. And, you know, Jamie sent out a newsletter, email newsletter. We'll link to the web version of notes. It was really good newsletter that brought up a lot of, uh, a lot of great points. And one of those points um, beyond, uh, as we've already talked about a little bit, breaking down the problem is the idea that this job movement is, is quite often not about pay. There's other issues around workplace environment and culture. And as we'll come back to one article later that was in the New York Times, um, are, are you working for a jerk? Mm-hmm. And if you've got options, people are going to move on. Yeah. And, and pay, you know, if you don't have a lot vested in a job, pay is an easy, easy reason. But, you know, we, we also see time and time again that if, if people love their work and their company, um, they don't even look to see if there's a better paying job. So, so, so yeah, pay, pay is a factor. Uh, no question about it. Wages are going up. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, uh, the, the chaotic nature in which it's happening may be a little, a little difficult to deal with, but, but nevertheless, probably a good, a good underlying trend. Um, it's, it's good for the people taking home that pay. There's the business challenge and, and to, to go into lean mode for a second, there's this, you know, Toyota concept or lean concept that says, well, it, you know, that says you're not entitled to a certain profit margin. So if your costs are driven up by market forces and companies are seeing double whammy of, um, higher wages, higher material costs, that cuts into your margin. You're not entitled necessarily to raise prices. Now, some companies try, and that that feeds into uh, inflationary pressures. But there there are times where then uh, you you have those increases in costs. You find ways to make up for it elsewhere, and that's where lean can be really powerful. Yes, we're paying people more, but now let's take out waste and let's better yet engage people in improvements so they can be doing that. 
and um, you know providing that you know a positive return to the company. Yeah, and 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 yeah, certain industries have raised prices, which we've seen quite a bit of. Others can't. Right, healthcare uh, has you know certain aspects that they can't in, in certain ways. So, country of contracts that, that you know force majeure may not be enough to to get you into a new price. So, um, and and this this comes down to breaking down the problem is, I uh, you know it's not just what I pay people, it's not just do they quit or do they stay, uh, it's also what do I what do I get out of them, and and I've I've been almost fascinated by how many companies will talk to me about uh, trying to hire, hire better, hire more, but spend less time thinking about, okay, how do we get more output from the resources we have, right? Whether that be, you know, investment stuff like like automation or simply taking waste out of the work. Um, probably not, a, you know, maybe it's just a lack of confidence that they can get there, although they should have also had low confidence that they could hire more people since they all tried and, and failed. Yeah. But uh, but fundamentally, like in, in the end, it's still about your output uh, and, and your input may, may be more variable and that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's system dynamics that we could delve into, you know, thinking of our, our beloved department and, and field that's, uh, you know, very associated with MIT, looking at the system dynamics of, um, wages and employment. And if you can pay people more and that reduces the turnover rate, you can save a lot of money by reducing turnover. When you look at the hiring costs and the, the waste and the inefficiencies that come from um, a high employee churn rate, um, yeah, yeah, you, know, you, know, you, you can figure out um, you know, how to come up with um, you know, something that's not just this overly simplistic analysis. Like I cringe when I hear, and sometimes people have thrown this at me directly, like the company that I used to buy my pizza oven wood from can no longer supply me because they're, they're labor constrained, there's material costs, they're focusing on um, selling wood to bigger construction jobs. Hey, the, the, anyway, the, this guy started going off on this rant that included the line, well, people don't want to work anymore. And I, just, I didn't want to hear any of that. I'm like, that doesn't, okay, fine. You know, good day, sir. Uh, I'm going to find another company to work from. And, and, and I think that generalization of like, nobody wants to work anymore is either A, nobody wants to work at the wages I'm offering in the conditions I offer. And, you know, if somebody, you know, I think if a business owner, I'm not saying this guy was totally uh, of this attitude, but if you think people are lazy, they don't want to work, they just want more money and you have this negative view, how's that going to help you? If that attitude comes through, how's that help you hire people? Yeah, even if it was all true. <laughs> even if it was true. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't help at all. And and that's the thing, right? If people have choices, they have choices. So, you know, then then you need to do better. And and that's why, you know, in the end, you know, people look because they're unhappy. And the two main factors, you know, unless unless what made them unhappy was the work itself, which means that, you know, there's not much you can do to fix that. That is what the work is. And they were stuck and they were always unhappy, which means you probably weren't getting their best anyway. But people leave bad bosses and they leave bad cultures. Right. And those are highly related, right? The Venn diagram of, of reasons. But but the, the, those are the reasons why people are like, yeah, I'm going to look because why would I keep putting up with that if I don't have to? Yeah. 
And so that, and that's controllable. I don't want to say controllable like you push a button, but it's it's fixable, it's preventable, it's improvable. And and so yeah, you could every company out there could throw more money at people. Um and and some will and some have to. Uh but fundamentally, if if you if you don't fix bad bosses or bad cultures, then you're going to have to throw even more money just to break even. Yeah. And, you know, I think if I was working with a client who threw this big, vague concern at me about, um, you know, turnover is too high, too many people are quitting, it's too hard to hire, you want to start breaking down that problem. We can start defining the problem, talking about causes maybe getting closer to some sorts of root causes that we might be able to control and, and, and steer them away from the countermeasure trap mm-hmm. of just leaping to solutions without really fully understanding the problem. Or, you know, if we're trying to improve the culture, like, you know, there's a lot of complaints in healthcare. Um, you know, you, you read people's comments online of like, you know, our environment sucks. Management doesn't support us. It's been worse during the pandemic. And what do they think the answer is? Free pizza. Yeah, like, it, like you know, you know and, and and they're almost insulted by it. Like, you know, yeah, that, that, that clearly everything. clearly doesn't show the time spent to go understand root cause. And 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 so one of the other points I made just around you know understanding cause and effect is that you know the assumption you know you, we had a working model of why people work right, and and that model goes back you know decades uh, in many ways, you know, I'm not saying you can put a lot of math to it, but there's math for it. And there's fundamental assumptions around what it takes and how much people are willing to tolerate what the rules are. And you know what? Some of those assumptions aren't true anymore. And and so the idea of, of being curious about cause and, you know, before you jump to solutions, Mm -hmm. You know, three years ago, you could at least jump to some solutions, right? If if this isn't working, then tweak this knob because that always works. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 assumptions have changed, and assumptions about location have changed, about hybrid work have changed, about manager interactions have changed around uh, around just the assumption that you know this is what work looks like have started to change. So as those assumptions assumptions change, we have to be more curious about cause and effect because the the systems dynamics model, the assumptions, the math, you know, all of the levers, all of those things uh, are different. Now, it's not a completely different world. Many of them are still generally true, but to different degrees, different ratios, different levels. And, And so, again... Once the underlying assumptions change, just like just like strategy in the marketplace, you gotta you gotta be curious about cause and effect and what's really gonna work. So maybe you know to shift to we were gonna talk about a healthcare story that's been in the news. COVID is not the only reason people are leaving healthcare. Like there's been numbers thrown around and the numbers are disputed that. Um, one out of every five healthcare workers has left healthcare in the past year or something like that. Um, employee retention turnover um, has been a huge problem in healthcare for a long time. There were culture problems and workplace problems before COVID. 
the percentage of nurses, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. It's a shockingly high percentage of nurses who leave the field in like their first three years. Like that's, that's a huge waste in terms of people's potential and the market for um, healthcare staff. We've got to create environments that aren't so repulsive to a high percentage of people where they're like, oh, no, I made a huge mistake. I, you know, um, went, went to school and went through all the um, work education. And now a couple of years in, they're like, no, I'm going to do something different. That That's a huge shame. But, you know, there's, there's stuff happening in different organizations, um, not necessarily even triggered by COVID, but it's happening during COVID times. So there, there were news stories the last couple of weeks, um, Thetacare, which some listeners may recognize the name and say, oh, that, that's a great lean healthcare organization. I'm like, well, they, they, they used to be considered a poster child for lean. You know, John Toussaint started them on that lean journey in the, the 2000s when he was CEO. Um, the CEO who followed him, Dean Gruner, was an internal hire who, you know, tried keeping that, that momentum going. And then when Dean retired, they hired an outsider. The board hired an outsider who has brought in many other outsiders. And, you know, four years ago, um, you know, we learned from people that they basically got rid of their internal theta care improvement system staff. And I've talked to other people, and this is, you know, anecdotally and on background from people that, yeah, the lean culture that they were trying to build was completely, uh, you know, thrown out back to kind of a very traditional more command and control healthcare leadership style. So there, there's this broader context where I want to paint a picture of like, well, why is a lean organization doing this, this next part of the story? That's not the explanation. So the this, the headline, I'll try to summarize this, is in the interventional radiation department, interventional radiology, at one of the main theta care hospitals, that's their stroke center. So that's where they funnel stroke patients for very... Uh, specific care. They're a level two trauma center where a typical hospital would be a quote unquote level one. In December, late December, seven out of the 11 team members in that department all submitted letters of resignation. Now they were all taking jobs at a competing health system in town, part of Ascension Health. So they gave notice. And again, this is from news reports and articles about what then became a legal case that ThetaCare basically sat on this information. You've got people saying, we're all going to take jobs at this other health system. They're promising better work-life balance. The pay is a little bit higher. Okay, thank you. See you. We're gone. ThetaCare did not counter-offer. And who knows if the counter-offer would have really made a difference because back to the point around why do people even start to think to leave? Some of the news reports said that earlier in 2021, two of their colleagues in interventional radiology were fired for reasons the rest of the team, others thought were unfair, that prompted one person to start looking for other jobs. And then Ascension Health had open positions and colleague tells their colleagues about, hey, there's jobs over at Ascension Health. So then they all resign. ThetaCare doesn't counter offer. They're set to start these new jobs on a Monday here in January, 2022. ThetaCare files a lawsuit. And they got a judge to, to do an initial temporary restraining order that was going to prevent them from starting their new jobs. Now, the lawsuit was against you know, organization to organization, but now these employees get caught in the middle and it got a lot of notoriety for, wait a minute, this is a free market for labor. They were at-will employees. You can't block them 
from starting a job um, elsewhere. So, you know, just to close the story on the, on the legal issues, then on that Monday, the judge threw out the temporary restraining order. Um, the employees were allowed to start their new job the next day on Tuesday. And then we learned Friday, two days ago, that ThetaCare now has dropped the whole legal case. You think, oh my goodness, like, you know, not being proactive, bad problem solving, like what, like they, 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 they wanted the court system to force two people to remain on call for Theta Care. Like, no, they've quit. You don't get to do that. And maybe I'm just ranting now, but it's just, it's just kind of a crazy, sad situation. Yeah, it is. It is. It is crazy. And of course, you got to look in the mirror when when you have that many people quit, and and you didn't even bother. It's like even if you said, "Oh, they're just doing this for more money." Well, you could have at least matched, right? I mean, sure. it, it, that was that would have been pretty easy. And they didn't even bother doing that. Um, and you know, that's not. I will say that's not easy, right? Because it's like, well, does this mean we raise wages for everybody in our entire system? Or not, or do we set this? Does this look like you know, uh, you know, a ransom where people are holding a job offer, you know, uh, publicly to to increase wages? But that happens a lot. It happens a lot. It, ha- it doesn't always yeah. happen systematically. Yeah. And and you know, I think a lot of people. I, I read some of the you know some of the threads on it, some of the comments on it. Um, you know, obviously uh, there, there's. Uh, there was certainly a lack of understanding about what the what the judge could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't force people to keep working at Theta Care, but if if uh, if, if Ascension had acted illegally in coordinating the uh, the mass, you know, like oh hey, we're going to give you guys all offers, but make sure you all put in your resignation right. at the same time. If they had done stuff like that, there's probably a, a, some merit to the lawsuit. Well, and Thetacare was claiming that Ascension poached them in a coordinated effort. Ascension denied that in their legal filings. And I'm, I'm guessing part of Thetacare pulling the plug on the case is that they probably were realizing that this was, what, what, what was it going to lead to? Like a financial settlement? But well, you know, one, it could have led to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, one, one, I think this was in one of the legal filings where some of the voice of those employees who were switching jobs in their own local great resignation was that um, the somebody, a leader at Theta Care is alleged to have said something like the short-term cost of raising your wages isn't worth it long-term. Wow. Okay. That backfired on them because now in the short term, there were job postings of you know $6,000 a week traveler nurse jobs. And like the short-term cost now compared to bumping up their wages. And again, we don't know they would have stayed. No. But it doesn't seem like ThetaCare made much of an effort to either address the wage issue or the other underlying issues of, you know, the, the, the employees said we were not leaving just for wages, but for a better work-life balance at this other health system. What could ThetaCare have done to address that that would have been better than filing a lawsuit? Yeah, and, and it, it shows that, uh, you know, they didn't really have an appreciation for 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 a a big aspect of that, which is what do I want my work to be like and how much say should I have in that? Um, Now, you know, union aside and rules aside, it's still fundamentally that if people have a choice, what are they going to choose? And are they going to choose us? Mm -hmm. Right. And and so in in my newsletter, you know, one of the things I wrote 
um, I see a lot of companies kind of go, okay, uh, we shouldn't have a culture that people want to leave and we shouldn't have bosses that people want to quit on. I'm like, that's such a low, uninspired standard. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so um, what, what I found interesting was uh, at, at a, a company I'm on the board of, board of directors of Robinson Fans, they had multiple people, yeah, like any company, they had people leave and they had multiple people, multiple people came back and, and they basically said, I, I, I liked it here more. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that's the kind of culture you want. You want a culture and, and you want an environment that people, if they leave, they're going to miss it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's so good that it's not just, oh, okay, you know, is my boss a jerk or not a jerk? Like, again, that's a pretty low bar. But if they leave, they're going to be like, wow, that was the best job I ever had. That was the best company I ever worked for. I, I wish I had that again. Yeah. And, and so either they leave and then they come back. And, and that's a signal to everybody that's still there, by the way, that the grass isn't so greener on the other side. Right. And, and then, it, you know, everyone else is like, yeah, I, I like it here. I like the culture. I'm engaged. I, my work is meaningful and I don't want to look anywhere else. Yeah. That's what we should try to build. And when we build that mm-hmm. issues like, like uh, Theta Care dealt with, you know, how much do we have to pay you to keep you to stay? And is that even worth it is a moot point, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Wait, of course, wages still matter, but like, it's, it's, that's not what it comes down to uh, that. They, they had lost those employees long ago to your, your background on the story. Yeah. Any leader or company or organization wants to be proactive and, you know, wants to think about a, you know, a workplace FMEA failure modes effect analysis one bad thing that could happen to your business is a lot of people all quitting at the same time. So let's be proactive about that and think, well, what are the odds of that? What's the severity? How would we know if that was happening? Um, but you know, a couple of points come to mind from what you were saying, this idea of people leaving and wanting to come back. Um, that happened a number of times with uh, Sammy Bari, the dentist, uh, the, the quote unquote, the world's first lean dentist in Jacksonville, Florida. Yep. Uh, I think at least a couple of occasions, he had somebody from the office team from that practice quit and take a job for some reason. Not because, not because they were unhappy there, but there may have been some reason. They ended up coming back to work for him because they couldn't work in a, a typical dental practice anymore after having been in that environment where, where Sammy engaged people so well uh, in improvement. So I've interviewed him before and, and, and I'll share, um, we'll, we'll share links to that. And the, the other thing that comes to mind of like, you know, why do people stay? When I worked at Dell computer from 1999 um, to the end of 2000, you know, 20 months that I worked there, there were a group of hourly employees that were working in uh, the factory that were referred to as, quote unquote, the volunteers, because they had been working at Dell long enough. They had been funneling a large, you know, whatever. They were taking advantage of stock purchase opportunities and stock options and grants. And the reason, well, why are they called the volunteers? I'm like, they're, they're rich enough. They could quit, but they enjoy working here. They like the people they're around. The, you know, like the job wasn't so bad and, you know, it's physical work. Um, but, you know, they, and I thought there was something to be said for that. Like if, if people are working there by choice, when money is not at all an option, if you, you manage them 
differently. And everybody should be managed with that same respect of like, we want to treat them well so that they don't choose to quit. Why would they choose to stay? Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the tone I think people should be setting in 2022. So even if, even if the market normalizes and, and this, this whole great resignation is, is, uh, you know, fades as a, as a trend, um, you know, people have always, you know, people have always, you know, they, they put their corporate metrics together and their goals and they say, oh, employee engagement matters. Yeah. It's easy to write on a slide. Well, now, now it does, right? Now, yeah. now it really does. And, and so I think 2022 is an opportunity to say, let's, let's seek that standard. Um, let's pretend every employee could quit mm-hmm. uh, and could quit for more money. Now, how do we make it that working here is better, right? Than, than anything else they could find out there and, and not just to hang on to them, right? But like, I think the other factor is people looked at, you know, talk about breaking the problem down. How many people do we hire? Okay, that's one. How many, how do we retain what we have? Mm-hmm. And there's also how much do we get out of the folks that we have? And not just output, but energy, right? Commitment, effort, right? Just that, you know, when, when you're on your drive home, do you check mentally check out of work the second you log off uh, and, and swipe your badge or whatever it is you do? Or you kind of keep thinking about things and, and where's your heart? Where's your mind? And and is it invested in your, your job? And and so getting the best out of your, your employees at any level, right, at any level, is sometimes about their commitment, their energy. Um, you know, what do they think about in their free time? And uh, you know, again, all of that is not just do they want to be there, but they do they want to see it go well. Um, and I think that's a that's a different standard that some companies have always pursued. Mm-hmm. Other companies have wanted to pursue, but you know, as long as they weren't distracted by something else. And I think now more companies are realizing it's it's yeah. you know it's a strategic imperative. And, and there's the, the engagement question. And, um, you know, there, there was an article I saw the other day that talked about, um, you know, absenteeism is one thing. Resignations are another thing. The, the, the bigger problem sometimes is what they call presenteeism, where people are showing up, but they just don't give a damn. And I, I wouldn't blame them. I, I, I'm not blaming employees for, I don't think it's productive to blame employees for quitting. It's not productive to blame people for, for getting burned out or checking out or being like Peter Gibbons in the movie office space comes to mind. Um, let's stop doing that to people. Cause if, if we blame the quote unquote deadwood, like this goes back to a Demingism it's attributed to Peter Schultes and, and others. I don't know the exact source, you know, that asks the provocative question. If you're complaining about all the dead wood in your organization, think back to when you hired live trees. Let's stop doing this to people. Because if, 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 if phase one is presenteeism, the next phase will be uh, resignation as soon, as soon as they find something better. It might take a while. Yep. Yeah, well, let's say you know. Oh, yeah, they retired a few years ago, but they 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 still show up to work every day. Um, <laughs> you know, still get a paycheck, and and so um, you know, as we think about that, it's it's uh, uh, the culture is an aspect, the pay is an aspect, um, 
And then, you know, and then there's just, you know, bad bosses, right? That, yeah. that is ultimately a company responsibility, but that we don't pay enough attention to uh, very often. Um, how do we select them? How do we train them? How do we prepare them? How do we monitor them? And, uh, you know, fundamentally monitoring bad bosses, you know, unfortunately, you know, resignations is a, is a lagging metric and, and, you know, sort of clumpy enough, right? Uh, not, not trendy enough data that we can really kind of go, oh, well, you're, you, you have, by the time you recognize a pattern in the data, it's way too big and too late. So let me tell a quick story thinking back um, to Dell when I decided, you know, it was, it was not a good fit for me. I was going to find another, um, you know, find a new job. I had a period of presenteeism and the leading metric, I'll, I'll never forget the story. So there were dynamics there. And again, like all good individuals involved, but it, you know, I was, but the last manager I worked for is someone who had been promoted. I had been a peer. I had no ill will toward her. I wasn't resentful of like, oh, well, she got the job and I didn't. It wasn't one of those situations. She was better than other managers that I've been reporting to. But we had a mutual friend who were like we hung out with in social circles. And, and this friend told my then manager, or no, my, my then manager said to the friend, I wasn't present in this conversation. The manager said something like, oh, you know, Mark seems a lot happier at work these days. And the mutual friend said, I think he's just stopped caring so much. <laughs> and it was so true. And I ended up leaving and it wasn't that manager's fault. Like that company, the culture just didn't feel like a good fit for me in, in different ways. And so I moved on and I'm not saying I was, I was quote unquote, stealing from the company as one CEO in this next article accused people of um, the CEO from better.com, you know, said employees were stealing from the company because they weren't working enough hours. I, I just, I, I wasn't fully committed to the company in, in, in the sense of going above and beyond and stressing myself out anymore. And that meant there were fewer things to be upset about. Yep. And yeah, I moved I on. And I think, I think there's a, there's a whole nother mental health uh, lesson in there, but um, yeah, the, the better.com CEO uh, certainly, uh, you know, became a poster boy for uncaring managers um, by, by doing a big mass zoom layoff. Uh, of 900 people. 900 people basically saying, if you're on this call, it's because you no longer have a job here. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and interestingly, you know, wasn't fired for that. Um, took a few weeks off, got an executive coach, hopefully got his mind right. Um, they must, they must see something else in him because it would have been an easy firing for that. Cause he was, if, even if you, even if you agreed with his approach, the amount of bad press it brought, brought the company was right. significant. Right? Right. So, so, yeah, when, they, when they're in a position to grow again, good luck hiring people with that reputation. Thetacare is going to have trouble hiring, you know, people probably, you know, especially locally, this was even bigger news. But, yeah. you know, the guy from better.com was highlighted um, in, in this article. We'll link to it in the show notes from the New York Times earlier in January. No more working for jerks. And, and they used his company as one of those scenarios. Now, those people aren't working. We'll call them a jerk. Uh um, they're not working for him because they were fired, but like there are things within the company and I'll compare it a little bit to Kinexus, which 
is a very, um, and, and as far as disclosures go, Jamie and I both have ownership stakes in the company and we're affiliated with them in different ways, but it's very focused on the, the on the customers, the purpose, the mission, spreading continuous improvement, providing software and support that helps people better their company's journey. At better.com, which I think was in the mortgage business, they had like this culture and the slogan and this acronym and this, this phrase is LGTM. Let's get that money. And I'm like, I don't know, like for me, that would be a huge red flag. I'm like, that's, that's the, that's the most important thing that matters. Like people at Kinexus make money. They have a paycheck. They want the company to grow. And if they, you know, have a, you know, shares in the company that they've earned, look, that's all aligned, but the mission leads to, I think, better engagement, better retention, better participation to the cause that then end result leads to money. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's um, yeah incentives and things like that. We could go off on a, a tangent on that. It leads to all kinds of weird behaviors. I think a lot was made out of the uh, you know get Gronkowski another catch uh, to return NFL playoffs, uh, so he gets a bonus. Yeah, that happens every year in the NFL and other sports. Yeah, yeah, but, chasing the incentive, the individual incentive bonus. Right, but 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 those were both characters that. Would never, you know, but, but didn't put the team goal on the line, uh, you know, in exchange for that incentive, right? Well, just go back to, to Brady, though, and the Buccaneers. I mean, they they ended up losing last week. But Brady basically told the head coach reportedly, no, don't take me out of the game yet because I'm going to get Gronk that touchdown and that catch that, that boosts him over. Like, Brady could have been hurt. If he had blown out his knee or gotten really injured um, during those, I don't know how many plays it was, that was putting the team's future it was. at risk out of loyalty to a teammate. So I appreciate the loyalty, but, you know, as I say, don't hate the player, hate the game, or <laughs> blame the system, not the individuals. They were doing what they were incentivized to do. So yeah. it won't be too, too harsh on Brady or Gronk. Yeah, and and, and so you, you get into companies like, you know, better.com and, 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 you know, I'll say tying even back to uh, what your wood supplier, you know, said about lazy people is pe- people are one of these underlying trends that is very clearly true is people want purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, they always valued purpose, but eh, only if they could find it, right. If, it, if, if purpose found them or if they happen to find purpose, then it was okay. But but uh, but now people want it. Now, now they seek it out. And and so you see a younger generation coming through the workforce. It it I don't think it has to be the company's purpose. I don't think it has to be, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, for every pair of socks we sell, we donate one to uh, that kind of purpose. Uh, but it, it, it could be the purpose around the work environment. It could be how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. The, the, the relative weight of purpose uh, and overall contribution to society relative to the job and the pay and just trust that that's your expectation, that's an underlying uh, assumption that has changed. Yeah. Um, and so company strategy is going to have to reflect that to a degree. But, you know, more importantly is, is company culture, meaning how do we how do we work and how do we treat people and how do we treat employees? Yeah. Uh, 
uh, is 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 going to have to reflect that. And and you, yeah. you can complain about it all you want, but uh, again, if if employees have choices and uh, other cu- cultures beat yours, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And this is often attributed to millennials and the now younger generations, even of you know what they want in a workplace. And and sometimes I roll my eyes and think, well, as a Gen Xer, I want those same things. And I think the baby boomers maybe wanted those same things. So going back to the late Paul O'Neill, when when he was CEO at Alcoa in the late 90s, you know, he talks about like, you know, to me, these are three famous questions. You know, he said every employee at Alcoa should be able to say yes to these three questions. Uh, Just paraphrasing, am I treated with dignity and respect by everybody I encounter? Then the second question was about like, am I given the resources I need? Not the end of the sentence is not to do a better job for the company. So am I given the resources I need to make a contribution to the organization that adds value and meaning to my life? So was everybody who worked at that company passionate about making aluminum? Maybe not, but somebody working in some function or some department who was given treated with respect and given the resources to do their job well that sense of pride and work, as Dr. Deming, you know, would talk about, is, is, is something very powerful to the employee, regardless of, of generation. It gives meaning to my life that I am equipped to do a good job at, at what I do. That's higher in um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. It goes beyond pay. It, it, it's getting closer to uh, self-actualization. Is that the phrase? I think that's the right. I think that's how, how he wrote it. Yeah. And, and and I, you know, so, yeah, I, I think the idea that the new generation wants this and and we didn't is is false. Um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, generations coming into the workforce today, I, some of it is a lack of patience. Um, and that's good and bad. And I'll, I'll go over the bad first is that, you know, we've both been working on changing how companies manage for you know more you know decades, right? Yes, yeah, we're we're not the youngsters now. For decades, right? And it's hard. These are hard changes. They don't just happen because you decide to. So it, it's it's complex and there's a lot of factors and it's a hard work. So we've got to stay at it and keep keep going. So that there's there's a lack of appreciation of of that journey. On the other side, there's passive patience. Right. Meaning that a lot of people in our generation and our parents' generation were told it'll come. Just take your licks. Right. Yeah. Do, 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 you know, take, just do grunt work, uh, be treated like crap. Uh, you know, if your boss doesn't, doesn't like you, that's just too bad and grunt, grunt your way through it. And, and eventually you'll be shown respect. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, the generations coming up today are like, well, we've seen that promise. We've seen that game. And it turns out, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> this idea that just, you know, eat crap for a couple of decades and then you'll be shown respect is, yeah. is A, doesn't actually work out and B, isn't worth the trade-off. Yeah. And so I, I, I really applaud, I, again, the, 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 the idea that, no, 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 we, we at least, we maybe not everything can happen just because we're 25, but the idea that it's it's not okay to treat us this way, uh, there's an awful lot of merit to, and they're being vocal about it, 
And, and that's, that's going to help change things. And so there's going to be the sea change in business. Um, when companies are fighting for employees, there are going to be winners and losers. And my hypothesis would be more of the winners will fall into the good culture category. And some others will go kicking and screaming and blaming others into bankruptcy and oblivion because they they weren't able to figure this stuff out. So that no more working for jerks article, you know, it's, to me brought up a couple of key points. Like I always hate it when the entrepreneurship magazines, you know, have this profile of the startups and they, they focus on superficial perks. Mm-hmm. So in hospitals, they're getting pizza parties. At tech companies, they're getting Michelin star gourmet meals, right? But free food, right? Um, and, and ping pong tables and stuff like that that became popular during the, the dot-com boom. But, you know, in, instead of just more perks, we need fewer jerks. Kinexus as a startup, even when we were in offices before the pandemic, man, nobody was working there because of the sweet office. They were working there because, you know, Greg and Matt as the co-founders and, and others there have created a good culture. And there's compelling work and there's purpose and, and, and that's great. And then, you know, the other thing in the article, you know, talks about the need, like there's one level of filter of like getting rid of the quote, the, the illegal workplace behavior, the sexual harassment, the, the hashtag me too category. And then beyond that, there's activity that's not illegal. It's just jerky. And, and, and that's going to be, um, I think, more important. Yeah, and I think the, the I think that's the key, right? Is that you know in the past, you know, I mean, Peter Drucker saying strategy or culture eats strategy for breakfast would suggest that this this correlation has been true for a long time, but the correlation is increasing, and the pandemic may be an inflection point in greater correlation between a positive company culture and actual success, right? There are a lot of companies that had crappy cultures, but people just ate it and dealt with it and, you know, suffered through it and still had great success by at least financial uh, terms. Um, but that correlation is going to tighten. Um, and in the war for talent, whatever you want to call it, uh, people don't don't want to and don't need to work for jerks anymore. So, so they will choose not to one way or the other. Yeah. So again, to the people who are complaining, nobody wants to work anymore. I think the sentence is more complete and more accurate. Nobody wants to work for me anymore. Yep, because there's still plenty of people working, and let's face it, the, the you know most of the people actually exiting the workforce are baby boomers. So right, we're still still a lot of it's about retirements, and the rest of it's mostly about the shift uh, to different work. So. Yeah. It's not that people aren't working. Yes, there's some of that for sure. Some of that's temporary. Some of that might be permanent. Uh, a lot of the permanent is retirements, which means it's not the younger generation by definition. Uh, so it's uh, people are still working, just going to work on their terms. And they don't want to do, they don't want to work for the wrong people or wrong cultures. Yeah. So. And, you know, I left Dell Computer. I'd be curious how many of those volunteers, how long they stayed. Because by 2000, this is not why I left, but that that stock market shares, options, 
uh, wealth that was being created was no longer a big dynamic. So I'm sure at some point people then did start rethinking, like, I've got this wealth accumulated, but I'm not getting more wealth by staying longer. And people are more likely to say, okay, uh, this is no longer worth it. I'm going to quit, retire. Yep. All right. So messages, um, free bourbon. I mean, sorry. That's not the, <laughs> yeah. the message is better bosses, better cultures, not just because you're a lean company, but because it's strategically imperative that you do better than you did before. Yeah. Well said. Good wrap up. So to wrap up the episode, um, we're going to step away from the great resignation topic and. Um, Talk a little bit about workplace shows or movies. Yeah, so so uh, kind of as a tie-in, right? There's the whether it's industrial, uh, a lot of them are. You know, we think of them as you know because we have an industrial background. Com- uh, movies and shows that featured really kind of what work was like, or what office like was like, or what industry was like. Not too many of them, right? It's not a popular topic because there's only so much that can go on. Um, and, and this kind of came about because there's an, a new show, right? We both have some some of our, our roots in the auto industry. Yeah. So NBC has a new show, a new series about an automotive company. Um, called American Auto. Called American Auto, which, you know, I'm not sure how long they spent in the, in the brainstorming room on that one. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's from the creator of a, a show that survived for a number of years. I've never really watched called Superstore. So I guess they're in the simple names. Like this one could have been just called Car Company. But. Yes, it, it could have been. It's certainly Superstore, uh, you know, just very broad generic category. So same same kind of thing. So 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 first, you know, before we ask you know ourselves, right? We want to kind of hear from our listeners. You know, what's been your favorite show or movie that really kind of captures uh, industrial life? Uh, working life, you know, is kind of about that, about that thing. Um, so, so I don't think either of us actually liked this new, new, sh- new show. Um, it, it, I got through one episode barely. I didn't really love the first episode, but I know sometimes the first episode, the pilot, it's just setting up who are the characters and there's not always the greatest story in that first episode, but I got through the second and then like, I just got, I checked out like partway through the third episode. So when they, when they call it American auto, it's not about a, you know, like superstore, I think is clearly about Walmart or big box stores, or I think it's about Walmart. American auto is not a show about Tesla. It's a show about a company that's essentially Ford pain motors and they hire an outsider CEO. Now, one thing I didn't like about the show and I'm going to, you know, people, might want to throw a bourbon at me for for being politically correct here is that unlike Ford, who hired Alan Mulally from Boeing, who was an outsider, but extremely competent as a leader and and what have you, in the show, the character, um, the outsider CEO from outside the family is a woman played by Anna Gasteyer, who was on Saturday Night Live for a number of years. And the backstory is that she had been the CEO at a pharmaceutical company but they portray her as an idiot, like not just not knowing the auto industry. There are some attempts at jokes about that, but I'm like, I, I, just, I, I didn't find a lot of humor in that. And I think it's distasteful to have 
a character, the woman CEO, who's an idiot. Like, I think, I don't know, shows poke, you can get away with that with a, with a male character these days. I think. Well, and, 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 and that aside is, you know, you know, I go back to the office as a, as a show, a long standing show mm-hmm. right? about office life. And Michael Scott was a bumbling fool. Right. Mm-hmm. But you still liked him, right. <laughs> still yeah. rooted for him because he had some redeeming characters. Right. Or at least there were funny moments, funny moments, but he's, you know, he cared about people. Right. Sure. And, and, and it, it just seemed like in these characters, they're all bumbling fools and there's no redeeming characteristics. Um, so it, 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 it just seems a little overbaked in that, in that, in that direction. To one, one, one of the bumbling fools who sounds a lot, the actor sounds like um, Ed Helms who played Andy Bernard in later seasons of the office, the um, overprivileged underperforming member of the not Ford family, Payne Motors family, who, um, you know, is just hanging around and um, being a knucklehead. But, you know, there, there are these jokes that I don't think would appeal, or I don't think they, they, I think they would go over the heads of people who are not from Detroit or not geeks about the auto industry, where the, the founder of the company is portrayed as a racist and an anti-Semite, which has parallels. Henry Ford, unfortunately, was had a lot of anti-Semitic views and there's a lot of problems there, but like, A, does that connect with people? And B, where's the humor to be found? Yeah. yeah it in just that. seemed, uh, uh, yeah, someone wanted to load that in there, uh, but a bit of inside, inside humor, but uh, more, more inside than humor. You more inside than humor. Yeah. That, fair, fair enough. Um, so, so I think the, the question is what's our favorites. Um and 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 so immediately what, what comes to mind for me, and it really wasn't about industry, but was the, the movie Mr. Mom. Um, and 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 uh, Michael Keaton was an automotive engineer, right? So it's just I'm doing a little auto, you know, direct connect of auto industry here, but but still it was, you know, he was an automotive engineer, he got laid off. The manager, the jerk manager, was trying to cut costs. And then later on, he got, you know, busted for not not having his act together and tried to hire everybody back and, you know, hire, hired him back, I guess. But um, in the meantime, while he was laid off, he became Mr. Mom and his wife went back to work and all the comedy that goes along with that. But not a whole lot about what actually went on inside the auto industry. But I, I do remember some some scenes at the automotive factory. So I might need to go re-watch, re-watch that. I mean, I remember the scene. It was probably in the trailer, the famous scene of Michael Keaton as the clueless dad holding his baby's bottom up to a air oh, yeah. hand blow dryer in a bathroom in the process of changing a diaper. So I'm sure that movie is probably available for streaming. I'd imagine. Somewhere. Um, so it's funny. Another Michael Keaton movie, uh, Gung Ho. From the 80s? I'm guessing 1986? Something like that. It's, that sounds like the right era. And, and then it turned into a, a TV. Yeah, 1986 comedy. And then there was a short-lived TV series starring George Went, I believe, because I think he was one of the characters. Michael Keaton wasn't going to do the TV series. And I think I, I may be misremembering all of this. But I did watch Gung Ho a couple of years ago. So, I mean, it is pretty much sort of like an attempt at telling the story of, let's say, a Toyota or a Honda coming into 
Kentucky or Ohio, um, respectively. And, um, you know, the culture clash. Now, there's things that people now would consider cringy when we're doing comedy about culture clashes and yeah. uh, people from Japan coming to the U.S. and and what have you. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of great representation in films or TV when it comes to good industrial settings. Probably the most compelling movie I would throw in there, it's not at all a comedy, is the Netflix documentary called American Factory. Mm, Did you see yeah. that? It's been a while. Yeah. So it's a documentary. Um, it's pretty gloomy about this car factory in Dayton, Ohio, which is that's where I was born, not a car factory, but Dayton. And, um, you know, people are out of work after a long time and a Chinese company comes in to turn it into uh, an automotive glass plant. And um, that's a culture clash, not for jokes, but there's just a lot of it's it's pretty bleak of like people are excited that they're reopening a factory and we're going to have jobs and the Chinese are excited. And, and you know, I, I just, I, I, it, it's compelling. I wouldn't say like it, it's different than enjoyable and it's certainly not for laughs, but it's compelling. I would recommend it. Yeah. And, and, and just coming to mind for me is the, uh, the movie Tucker. Um, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's, it's really pretty good. Um, uh, was it Jeff Bridges? I, I can't remember. Now it's been a while since I saw it. All about the Tucker Automotive Company and battling the lawyers and you know the ability you know and and it really goes into designing the first car and prototyping it and starting up a factory and you know for anybody that spent any time in the auto industry it's it's probably a must see at some point but uh, uh, yeah pretty pretty interesting movie I seem to remember uh, it's been a long time since I saw that one so. So I, I, I should go watch Tucker, but you know, as a final point here, um, fun thing I did recently, uh, my wife and I went to the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Mm. So you may know this, you know, Peterson was the publisher of uh, Road and Track and other famous car magazines. And as they tell the story in the tour, um, he sold the magazine like right before the internet came around. So he sold at the peak and, and he put money. It, it's it's better than the car collection at the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit. Yeah, um, it is phenomenal. And one of the cars in the collection uh, was a Tucker. Wow. Which I don't know if I had seen in person before. And I don't think I have. The guide, one story, maybe this was in the movie. The Tucker, one of their innovations was putting in seatbelts. I think this is the yeah. 50s. The other automaker said... That car must be a death trap because why else? Why else would they put seatbelts in it? Like yep. it's like it's it's so hard to comprehend. No, that's that's a lot of how they combated uh, the uh, the Tucker uh, the the Tucker creation. But uh, yeah, that's pretty cool that they have one. So uh, all right, so we're wrapping up our first first episode of 2022. And just returning full full loop here, um, did the comparison of the two whiskeys hold up? Because uh, for me, I'd say the gap opened. <laughs> uh, the Johnny Drum over the Willet uh, Pot Still Reserve, I think, just became more and more favorable as as the evening went on. So what I did, I stopped drinking the Willet after I finished the Johnny Drum. Um, I pulled up by comparison. Different comparison, Nika coffee grain whiskey, which 
is basically bourbon, but they can't call it bourbon because it's from Japan. Right. But it's uh, probably a very high corn um, mash bill, very similar uh, to a bourbon. So I ended up comparing this, and 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 this is delicious, but it's it's lighter. Like it, it's you know Japanese whiskeys have a reputation for being lighter, maybe more floral, more delicate, less oaky. Um, so that was, I think that was the more interesting comparison between a classic American bourbon Johnny Drum and sort of a Japanese version of it in the Nika. Yeah, that's what that's what I've been sipping on here. Okay. Surprise. I poured it off camera. No worries. Well, uh, yeah, here's, here's, here's my willet. I didn't get too far into the willet. No, that's, well, it's a, it's a shame. Like I say, it's still worth drinking, but it just yeah. uh, a sign that, uh, it, 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 it might be a little, at least overpriced, if nothing else. Um, yeah. Nothing and wrong. I, it's just not the, the best. On your yeah. Side. I'm going to pour it out. I've got a ton of it here. <laughs> and I mean, look, it's probably, you know, uh, I would probably make cocktails with it. I'm not going to pour, I'm not going to pour it out uh, no. or just bottle. I'm going to, I'm not a bottle hoarder, but that's what I'm going to keep. Like you, you could turn yeah. it into a lamp. Uh, there's a lot. There's, I mean, I, I've, I've looked every time I look on you know, Pinterest about what you can do with old bottles. They're either highly labor intensive or after you have two, you don't need any more. So they're, None of them are solutions for for empty bottles, and 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 you know, so that's that's what the recycling bin's for. But uh, uh, but yeah, that's a fun bottle that size. So um, fantastic. So so we're we're gonna wrap up. Um, I'm gonna watch the fourth quarter of the game. 49ers are up seventeen to seven. Okay, it's a bit of a surprise. So Jamie, uh, thanks. As we as we wrap up here, as always, uh, we invite people to go check out. The websites, you can go to leanwhiskey.com. You can spell it with a K-E-I, a K-E-Y. I was talking badly before the whiskey. <laughs> K-E-Y.com or K-Y, leanwhiskey.com. That forwards to my website. If you want to avoid my website, you can also go. Yeah, you can also go to jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey and see the episodes there. We, we could buy a, a domain like lean whiskey, but not Mark Raven's website.com <laughs> to forward to yours. I think we're okay. If people, <laughs> well, it, to that spirit, if people just, if people just follow us on, you know, Spotify or Apple or whatever you listen on, you know, it doesn't matter what website you're, you're going to, you're all taken care of. So mm, Spotify, I'm not happy with them. So well, whatever, I'm, I'm not going to, not going to judge at the moment. Just whatever you're listening to, we're probably still there. You can find us anywhere, um, the podcast services. So please do uh, look for us. If uh, if this is your first time uh, listening, welcome. Please, um, hopefully we'll see you again some other time. Absolutely. And cheers. So please rate, review, follow, subscribe, what other terminology is used there. So yes, cheers. Cheers.